So have you ever felt like God was leading you to do something that didn't make sense? Oh boy, that's fun, isn't it? We had to talk about that a little bit last week. We looked at Elisha and after he followed the call of Elijah to come and be his uh, helper and to become his successor, we saw how he slaughtered his oxen, he burned his plowing equipment, something that really wouldn't have made a whole lot of sense. But Elisha certainly was not the first one in the Bible to be called by God to do something radical that might not have made sense to a lot of people. And today we get to look at one of those earliest examples because we are going to be in Genesis chapter 6 looking at the story of Noah. Now we'll, we'll dig more into the, the meat of the story here in just a little bit, but I want to start before we get into the main sac- section of our passage today. Let me just read a few verses in Genesis 6 that set the framework for what we're about to read. Starting in verse 5, it says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That's a strong statement, isn't it? For God to say that he regretted having made mankind in the first place. Because human beings had become so evil at this point. And so God had a plan. And his plan was, we're going to start all over. He's going to wipe out all the living creatures with the exception of four couples and two of every unclean and seven of the clean because some of those were for food and sacrifice and all that other story there but he's going to wipe out just about everything and start over and we see why here and and this speaks to and I think we need to, to to have this on the forefront of our mind as we jump into the rest of our passage today this understanding what a big deal our sin is in God's eyes that's what Genesis 6 speaks to when we see that God decides to send a flood and he's going to wipe out human beings with the exception of eight of them. He's going to start all over, start over with most of the animals. That tells us that our sin is a big deal. See, some people look at this passage and they find fault with God. And they say, how could God do this? How could God be so cruel as to flood the earth and do this to the people and to the animals? But the fault here isn't with God. We need to be really clear about that. The fault is with human beings, and it still is. See, this this same sinful hearts that they had back then, and they had certainly gone down a horrible path. But guys, we, we have that same thing within us. We have that same sinful nature within us, and our hearts are, are, are wicked. Our hearts go away from God, and so... We need to to have that perspective, and before we jump into the rest of this, I just want to remind us that the same wrath that God poured out through the flood, and then he promised he would never do that again, but that's the wrath that God poured out on his own son, Jesus, on the cross. Judd spoke a moment ago about the grace that God offers to us, and that's so true, and so as we read this passage, we need to read it with A fresh appreciation for the fact that although our sin is a big deal and the consequences of our sin is huge, Jesus took that for us. 
He's already paid the penalty for us. If we'll simply put our, our trust in him, if we'll believe that, if we'll put our faith in Christ and his finished work on the cross, then we receive the grace of God. We receive forgiveness from God. And so I want us to have the cross on the forefront of our minds as we're reading Genesis 6. Even though, of course, that would come so much later, we have that perspective now that will, will be important for us. All right, let's keep going. This is the main part of the passage I want to talk about, starting in verse 9. We're actually going to read down, so stick with me. It's several verses here, but, but it tells a, a story, and we're going to talk about it. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Noah definitely went all in here, didn't he? When you talk about somebody being fully committed to God's call and, and it, it didn't make a whole lot of sense. But there are a few things that I want us to learn from and be inspired from as we apply this story to our lives. And the first one is simply that Noah obeyed on faith alone. That's all he had to go on here. When God said, build an ark, Noah responded in faith. He didn't have any context for understanding what was about to happen. In fact, God told him in verse 17 that he would bring floodwaters on the earth, but that had never happened before. Noah couldn't understand what was about to take place. In fact, if you back up just a little bit into Genesis 2, so this is creation account, Genesis 2, 5 and 6 when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no one to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Now, there's a ton of interesting material out there if you want to research it, and there's a lot of disagreement about whether there was ever rain prior to Noah building the ark? Was the, the mist that watered the earth, did this continue on? Or you know, did that change once there were people to work the ground? I don't want to get off into all those details. But what matters here is that there was definitely no background for understanding if they did have any rain at all. Which, by the way, I tend to lean in the direction of thinking they probably did not up until this point. That this idea of rain was something new. But even if they did, they had no context for the type of rain they were about to experience and, and a flood coming and flooding the earth. And so Noah's just going on faith. And that's the real takeaway for us 
is we obey on faith alone. Even when it, you know, we might not understand it all, uh, we, we just do it. And, and you know, there's, there's so many things that, that make it difficult, you know, to, to respond in faith when we don't understand. But one of the things I want us to see is that faith leads us to act before we have physical evidence that action is needed. What I mean by that, in Noah's case, there was no rain. There, there was no history of any type of flood or anything like that. And yet God says, build this massive ark before it was ever needed. And Noah just had to do it. Now, the question that's often raised, and again, it's an interesting question, and we don't know a specific answer to it, but how long did it take Noah to build the ark? You may have heard before, it took him 120 years to build the ark, and that's based off of uh, Genesis 6-3, where God says to Noah that, that the, the lifespan of mankind will be 120 years. But we do know that it actually did not take him that long to build the ark. And here's why we know that. From Genesis 7-6, it says that Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came. We also know that he had three sons and that those three sons were married at the time. So you have to back up just a little bit. Japheth, his oldest, was born when Noah was 500, meaning 100 years prior to the flood. We know that his second son uh, was... 98 when the flood came and so that means that that he was born 98 years he was 100 it says two years after the flood so 98 years before the third son ham we don't know exactly how old he was but if we just you know take a rough guess say maybe that was in the range of 95 years before give each of them about 20 years you know be about 20 years old to find a wife so we're looking at somewhere at, at the most 75 years but it could have been less than that. It could have been 50 years. It could have been 25 years. We don't know, but it was a long time. We do know that, right? It took a long time to construct something like this. And, uh, and it, it was something that they had to act on long before they ever had any evidence that their action was needed. And I think that's the real key. Uh, made me think about what God told the priest to do in Joshua chapter 3. Do you remember when... The, the uh, ark was being carried across the Jordan River. And it says in Joshua 3, 16 and 17, that the Jordan was at flood stage at that point. And the instruction that the priests were, to, to, uh, were given by God was that they were to take the ark of the covenant and they were to go and they were to put their feet in the edge of the water. And at that point, the floodwaters would stop. So, I mean, just try to picture this. The ark was carried on long wooden poles. And so you've got the pole on your shoulder carrying the, the weight of the ark. There's several priests doing this. And they're walking out into this water at flood stage. Now, if you go into a, a river like this when it's running at flood stage, you'll be swept away. And yet God said that it wasn't until they put their foot in the water that the waters were going to stop. And so they're faced with that same dilemma, and that is that God has given a promise, right? God has spoken here and said, this is what I'm going to do, just like he did with Noah. He said, I'm going to send flood. This is going to happen. But they had to act first before they ever saw what was going to happen. And the priests did that, and, and we, we read that, Joshua 3, you know, that as soon as they put their foot in the water, the waters backed up and stopped, and they crossed on dry ground. And again, it was just another one of those miracles. But sometimes, in fact, I might say many times, 
We have to exercise faith before God intervenes. When God says, this is what I want you to do, we can't wait for God to, you know, to show us everything before we act. And if we're being honest, isn't that frightening sometimes? To say, I, I have to do this, and um, I know this is what God is leading me, or at least I'm pretty sure this is what God is leading me to do. And yet, until I do it, I'm not really going to see God do what God does. And I was thinking back through that and saying, how many times as a church, you know, that's been true in my own life too, how many times in the history of our church have we been in this exact place where we really sensed God leading us to take steps of faith, um, but it wasn't until we did that that we saw what God is going to do. And a lot of those scary steps of faith had to do with financial resources. And if we do this, are we going to have what we need in order to, to do? And, and I think back to you know, the very first decision we made to buy the property that our church sits on now. Which, by the way, if you don't know the whole story, we used to own everything that the school is on. We now own everything from the school back to the road in the neighborhood. And so when we bought this property... Church was very small, and we thought, okay, this is a step of faith, but we're going to do this, and then God provided, and then it's time to, to build a building. Same thing. It's like, okay, we need, we need to do this. We believe this is God's leading here. This is the next step he's given us, but this is scary, and if you look at everything on paper, it might not all add up, and it might not make sense, but we really think God is saying, take this step of faith, and we did, and God provided, and then, you know, every step of the way from expanding facilities and all that, we've never been able to look at something and be really comfortable and say, oh, we can handle that. <laughs> it's not how it works. But God says, I want you to trust me in this. Same thing is true when it's come to uh, things like adding staff. I'm going to tell you all, every time we've added a staff member, we've never truly felt comfortable that we could afford to do that. But at the same time, it's like God is saying, this is what you need. I'm going to provide. And he has. It's been amazing to, to watch and see uh, when we've taken on just those additional commitments that he's led us to take. But that's why it's so important for us um, when we're taking steps of faith to be confident that we're actually following God's direction. See, is anybody else, do you get a little nervous about that sometimes? It's like, okay. If I heard a voice from God, like an audible voice, or I had, you know, something written in the sky or something that says, do this, then I might be a little more comfortable. But you ever kind of second guess yourself and think, is this really God's direction or is this my idea? And we hear stories of people that have done things that, you know, they intended well. I read one of those uh, about a guy named Robert Fitzpatrick. He was retired from the Metropolitan Transport Authority in New York. He retired in 2006. He became a follower of a radio preacher by the name of Harold Camping. I don't know if you ever heard of him. He was obsessed with predicting the date of Jesus' return. And so Camping had done all these mathematical calculations and just with absolute certainty figured out that Jesus was coming back on May 21st, 2011. And so he told all his followers this. And uh, this guy, Robert Fitzpatrick, he, he, was, he believed him. And so what he did was he took his entire life savings, which was $140,000, and he spent it on ads in New York to warn people that Jesus was coming back on May 21st, 2011. Well, Jesus did not come back on May 21st of 2011. Uh, and... Fitzpatrick lost all of his money. Now, I think 
I don't know him, but I think his intention was good. He believed that this was a message that was important, and he was willing to spend his own personal, all of his life savings in order to get the message out because he cared about it. I think his intentions were right, but we read stories like that, don't we? And we go, oh my goodness, he was misguided. And so I don't want to be like that. I don't want to make a foolish decision, and that's why it's important that we know uh, with, with a great level of confidence as we're stepping out of faith that this is what God is leading us to do. Um, that's why... This book right here, this Bible, so important, so very important. Uh, this is the primary way that God speaks to us. And if there's something that we are sensing God leading us to do, and it's not in alignment with what we have here in Scripture, we can be really confident that's not God's leading. That's the first place to go, is to make sure. But sometimes there are things that that the Bible doesn't speak specifically to. For example, what if you're praying about a career change? What if you're praying about moving to a, 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 a relocating your family for another job? What if you're praying about going into ministry? Changing your vocation and going into full-time ministry? I don't think you're going to open the Bible and find a verse that says yes or no to that specific decision. Now, you can find principles, right? And you can find things that you can apply to that, but you're probably not going to find a verse that says, take the job or go into ministry. But that's where we rely on the, the Word of God, certainly, but we rely on the Holy Spirit in us as well. Because we have the Spirit of God as believers. We have the Holy Spirit in us. And the Holy Spirit is going to, as we learn to, to listen for His voice and, and, and understand His leading and His direction, He's going to lead us in certain directions. And then when we, when we get that prompting or that leading that we think this might be of the Holy Spirit, then our first response should be to look to Scripture and say, is there anything in the Bible that would contradict this? If so, then I know that's not of God. But... but if there's not anything to contradict this, and I really am sensing this is the leading of the Holy Spirit in me, then, then I'm going to do it. Uh, but I think it's important to acknowledge that sometimes our hesitation can be, I'm just not absolutely sure this is God's leading, but sometimes we just got to step out in faith. You know, and, and if there's nothing in, in the Bible, if there's nothing you know, to contradict that, and uh, by the way, another thing I would recommend is find other godly uh, people that you can run things by too and just you know kind of bounce it off somebody but once we know God's leading we we just we just got to go for it sometimes we just got to do it and say um, I'm I'm going to respond even though God hasn't done his part yet so Noah respond he obeyed on faith alone second thing I want you to see is that Noah obeyed even though he must have looked foolish to others I mean this decision you're going to build a massive boat for what I mean they didn't live by a lake as far as we know why in the world would you build something like this? I mean, and it says, and it gives the dimensions of the boat. And if we take that and convert it into something that we can understand, because it talks about cubits. Most of you probably don't speak in terms of how long things are in cubits very often. But this is over 500 feet long, 510 feet long, 85 feet wide, 51 feet high. That's a big boat. Multi-level this is a massive undertaking. Can you imagine the conversations? And I, I just imagine a conversation, something like this happening. Hey, Noah, what in the world are you doing? I'm building a boat. Where are you going to take it? I'm not taking it anywhere. It's staying right here. Why would you build a boat and not take it out on the water? 
because the water's coming here. What do you mean the water's coming here? God's going to send rain and the earth's going to flood. Noah, you've been smoking something a little funny lately? I'm not smoking anything. God told me to build a boat, so I'm building a boat. Yeah, sure, buddy, whatever you say. So how big will the boat be when you're done? About 500 feet long, 85 feet wide. It's going to have several decks. How many people do you plan to take with you on the boat, Noah? Just eight of us from our family. You're building a 500 by 85 foot boat for eight people. Well, it's not just for eight people. I thought you said those are the only people going on. Who else is it for? It's also for the animals. God's going to send them to us in pairs, and they're all going to get on the boat. Now, can you imagine having a conversation just how incredibly foolish Noah would have appeared to everyone around him when, when he's out there building this boat for people that have no concept of a flood and very well may have no concept of what rain even is at this point. How crazy is that? And yet Noah is willing to do it. I even wonder things like, how did his family respond? What was that conversation? Guys, what would that conversation be like with your wife? It's like, uh, yeah, I'm going to spend the, the next few decades uh, building a boat, dear. But God told me to do it. How would his children have responded? As, uh, you know, the, the, the spouses, uh, what would that have been like? We don't know. Maybe they had such confidence in who Noah was because we see that Noah was an upstanding man of faith. Maybe they had enough confidence in him to say, go for it. You know, I'm, I'm with you. Um, but that, that would have been difficult. But I read this and it just makes me think, you know, there are things that God tells us and leads us to do that just seem foolish to everyone else around us, right? You ever feel that way? That the things that God says to do, and I thought about a few of those that just probably seem foolish to people. For example, Jesus told us to love our enemies. That doesn't make sense, right? In the eyes of most people, why in the world would you love someone who hates you? Why would you uh, extend grace or kindness to someone who just hurts you? It sounds like craziness. How about voluntarily giving away your money, your other resources? I mean, I think most people can get on board with the idea of helping the poor, right, and, and, and being generous to those that need it. But I mean, something like, for example, in the Old Testament where there were these uh, different tithes that were required and the people would give therein. One of them that we think is still applicable to us today was the tithe that they would bring for the service of the temple. Tithe, of course, means a tenth. And so these people would bring a, a 10% of what they had, and that would be used for the service of the temple and the Levites and all this kind of stuff. And, and we still practice that today. That's not a, a legalistic type of a thing, but, but I believe, by the way, that principle still applies. That, that should be kind of a starting point, a minimum for us in our generosity toward the work of God through the church. But that seems foolish, doesn't it, to a lot of people? Like, you're going to give away that much of your money, you know? Um, that, that can be significant, and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. What about holding to a biblical view of sexuality? The view that we are created by God as male and female, that we are designed for, that, that marriage is designed for one man and one woman for life, to be committed to each other for life, and that we are to refrain from sex until we're married. I mean, think about all three of those things. How completely ludicrous do all of those sound now in our culture to so many people? They would look at that and say, you're crazy if you're going to follow that. Or the last one. What about valuing the dignity of human life? 
The Bible teaches that we were created in the image of God. That's the thing that makes human beings different from any other creation. The fact that human beings are infinitely more valuable than any other creation, animals or the, you know, the nature or anything else. Human beings are the ones that have been created in the image of God. So valuing human life and, and even beyond that, believing, as Psalm 139 teaches, that God has created us, has knit us together in our mother's womb. So to value human life in the sense of when a, a, a life has been created by God in his or her mother's womb to say that that life matters, you want to watch people go ballistic, take away their right to terminate life by removing abortion rights. People go crazy. And so, so much of, 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 of what we believe, of what Scripture teaches, it seems like foolishness to people around us. Now, my point, bringing those things up, is not to be controversial. If you know me, you know that's, that's not my thing. But just to show that we have plenty of different examples in our culture where the things that we're called to do are going to seem a little crazy to people around us. And yet we obey anyway, even though it doesn't make a lot of sense to people around us. Our response should be to do what Noah did and to say, I'm going to obey anyway. Last thing I want to point out to you is this, that Noah obeyed even though his task seemed impossible. Now, the first part of the task, building an ark, that's a big task, but really not impossible. It's challenging, but God gives him uh, a, a lot of, of specific instruction here. You know, starting in verse 14, make yourself a, an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it, coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you're to build. He gives them the dimensions of it. He says, make a roof for it. Leave an opening, one cubit, all the way around. So, I mean, put a door in the side. He gives very specific, coat it with tar and pitch and all, very specific instructions on this is how you go about building it. These are the dimensions. This is the type of wood that you're to use. This is how you're going to seal it, all that kind of stuff. And so all Noah had to do was, you know, maybe watch a few YouTube videos, and then he would be prepared for how to do this. Now, I, I joke about that, but... But really, I mean, this is a big job for sure. And that's why I think it would have taken him decades to, to do this. It's a massive job. It's not impossible. Building the ark, especially with that much clear instruction, is not impossible. You know what is impossible? Having all the animals come and get on the ark. I mean, stop and think about this for a minute. Two of every kind, and by the way, it says seven of those that were clean. But we'll just, we'll just go with the two because that's where our minds generally go because we have our pictures of Noah's Ark with the little pairs lined up, right? Getting, getting onto the little boat. So, I mean, think about this. Two of every animal is supposed to get onto the Ark and Noah is responsible for taking care of them. I mean, how in the world is that going to happen? How in the world are you going to get animals, all of them, on the Ark? It's impossible. And even if they all came... And they all showed up at the same time, miraculously. How are you going to get them on? You know, I, I don't know about you. I can't get my own dogs to obey my commands. Can you imagine trying to get a couple of jackrabbits to line up and get on the ark? I mean, this would have been utter chaos. And yet God says, listen to what he says here. Verse 19, he says, you're to bring into the ark two of every living creature, male and female, to keep them alive with you. That's the part that's like... 
That's impossible until you read verse 22. Of every kind of bird, every kind of animal, and every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. What God is saying here is, I'm going to do this. I'm going to provide for you. So here's the question for us. When it comes to things like this that seem impossible, how do we respond? I mean, there are a lot of different ways that, that we can respond. Um, we can, you know, give up and say there's no way. We can channel our inner hero. You know, this like, I'm going to make it happen. I can figure it out. I can do it. We can pawn it off on somebody else. We can act like we didn't hear it. I mean, there are a lot of different ways we can respond. But the way we should respond is to respond in faith and say, okay, I don't see the whole picture. I don't know every detail of what God is doing, but I do know that God is leading me to take one step after the other, and so we trust him. Church family, going all in in our faith means that we trust God to do what God's going to do even when we don't understand all the details. Even when the whole big picture doesn't make sense to us. We just follow in faith. You know where that confidence comes from? Verse 18, I'll close with this. Verse 18 says, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. God says, I am establishing a covenant with you. You can trust me. Let me end with a quote from Mark Batterson, and that I think sums it up when it comes to our response in obedience. Are we really going to follow God's lead or not? Batterson said, there are two kinds of people in this world. Those who ask why, and those who ask why not. Why people look for excuses. Why not people look for opportunities. Why people are afraid of making mistakes. Why not people do not want to miss out on God-ordained opportunities. Noah was a why not kind of a guy. Rather than being worried about doing something wrong, when God said, Noah, I want you to build an ark, he just said, why not? I'm going to trust you. Because God said, I will walk with you every step of the way. So wherever you are and whatever it is that God is leading you to do, maybe something that seems a little crazy, why not? If it's God, if God is in it, why not? Why not take that step of faith to say, Lord, I'm going to go all in because I can trust you. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness. We know that you're trustworthy. But we forget it sometimes. We know it in our head, at least. But Lord, in our hearts, sometimes we get scared and we, we look at things we shouldn't be and consider factors that shouldn't be really what we're considering. And so, Lord, I just pray that we're able to hear your voice and follow you. Pray that we're able to trust you. Pray that we're able to, uh, Lord, just walk in complete obedience to you. Lord, help us just to be ready to go, whatever that looks like, and to jump in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.